Will my most embarrassing moment, like in my life, happened in junior high at Irons Junior High. It's middle school now. It was a junior high when I was there. I was in track. It was track season, kind of like it is right now. And I was getting ready to go outside for track practice. And it was one of those days in Lubbock where it wasn't just like really hot, but it wasn't cold. And so I was trying to decide what to wear. Do I wear my, my shorts and my sweats? Do I just wear my sweats? Do I just wear my shorts? And so here's the decision I made. I'm going to just wear my sweats. I'm not going to wear anything else. I'll just wear my sweats. And so I'm outside, I'm running track, I'm stretching, I'm getting ready. I ran hurdles, not well, but I, but I ran them. I gave it my best shot. And so I'm outside, I'm practicing, I'm getting ready, I'm running my hurdles and I'm thinking, man, it's hot. Uh, these sweats are getting in my way uh, to, to, to accomplishing, you know, the jump or the hurdle over the bar. And so I decided I'm going to take off my sweats and just wear my shorts. The problem was I wasn't wearing any shorts. And so I started to take off my sweatpants. I had them off one leg. I started getting them off the other. And a friend of mine, everyone's outside. Girls, guys, everybody's outside running track. And one of my friends standing next to me goes, dude, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm taking off my sweats. He's like, bro, you don't have any shorts on. You're in your underwear. I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, I do one of those, those hopping things, you know, where you're trying to get your pants back on. I was mortified. My brother, Justin has bad ankles. He wasn't the best at track either. I have another brother, Jordan. He was a defensive lineman for Coronado High School for several years in a row, meaning he wouldn't be the best at track, right? He wouldn't be the best runner. He was a defensive lineman. My, my brother Travis years ago ran a marathon and he didn't prepare very well. He didn't do his homework. He didn't really study up on what it takes to run a marathon. And he ran that marathon. He barely survived it, but he had bloody nipples at the end of it because he wear the wrong clothes. Listen, my family and I, we are not runners. We are walkers. And... <laughs> Some of you understood that. Our last name is Walker. I'm being serious when I say, like, literally, we are walkers. I think the running gene, though, must have skipped a generation because me and my brothers didn't have it. But, but my kids can run, all three of them. They can run, and they're pretty fast. A couple of years ago, my son Levi was running the 800. He was running the 400, the 800, and the mile relay at a track event. And we show up for the very first track event of that season. And Levi, running the 800, starts running. And he's like sprinting. At least that's the way it looks to me. And he is out in the lead by a large margin. And I actually said to my wife, I leaned over to her, and I said, oh, poor guy. He doesn't understand. Like, this is two laps. He's running really fast. He's, he's way out ahead of everybody else. Like, you know, bless his heart. You know, this is going to be, this is going to be embarrassing. I, I know nothing about this. He, he kept running because I, I, he just kept running and running. He, he won the race by a large margin because I think the running gene, like it skipped a generation, it skipped my generation who went straight to my kids, if I run for very long, my, my side starts hurting, my knees start hurting, like I'm just not a runner. If I run for very long, I am running on empty fast. I run on empty quick. And I tell you that because the disciples, the, the early church were runners. You may not have realized that, but the, the disciples, the, the apostles, the early church, they were 
runners. They were running everywhere they went, like Forrest Gump. If they were going somewhere, they were running. But they weren't running like for no reason. They were running with a purpose and they were running because something happened that made them run. So, so why were they running? What were they running about? If you got your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And if you have our app, now's a great time to open our app, download our app, go to message notes and the verses and quotes and points, all of it will be there for you. You can even fill in the blank as you go with these words that'll be in all caps on this TV screen. It's a great way to stay connected and kind of lean in and make the most of our time. And if you're a kid, you should have gotten like a fill in the blank coloring sheet. Did you get one of those? Let me see them. If you got them, kids, you got your sheets. Okay. I see some of them, some of them, some of them. All right. Hey, that's for you to stay connected and follow along with us too. You can fill in the blank with us as we go with the words on the screen and the passage this morning is on that sheet as well. All right. John chapter 20, we're starting in verse one. Would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord this morning? And my wife, Darby is going to come and read the scripture this morning. Hi, my name is Darby. I've been married to this guy for almost 20 years. We have three kids. Levi and Coben are in the youth. Our daughter, Nixon, is in kids ministry. Um, I've been helping. I serve in nursery and get to hold a lot of your babies and then give them back to you when church is over, which is great. Um, and then also help with the women's ministry. Um, and apparently you get to read on Easter when you're married to the pastor. So it's a blessing. So... All right, let's read. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Thank you very much, babe. All right, you may be seated. So verse 9 says, until then... They hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Maybe like Isaiah 53, written about 700 years before the time of Christ, that prophesied the Messiah would come as a lamb sacrifice, die in our place for our sin, wouldn't die for his own sin, but would die for the sin of his people. And then at the end of Isaiah 53, it says the Messiah, the lamb sacrifice, who would die in our place for our sin, would enjoy a long life after that and would see many descendants. Isaiah 53 prophesied that the Messiah would come and die on a cross for our sins, but then be raised to life again. And they see the empty tomb and all of a sudden the light bulb starts going off in the disciples and in Jesus's followers. Hey, they prophesied, the prophets prophesied that this would happen, that he would die and that he would rise again. And Jesus told them, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And so all of a sudden, they're remembering what Jesus had said, what the prophets had foretold for hundreds and thousands of years about the Messiah 
that would come. And so they're running everywhere. Did you count how many times the word run or ran was, was in these verses? Like, like count it. It's like four times that it says that they were running or they, or they ran. They're running everywhere. Mary Magdalene sees the empty tomb and she runs and tells the disciples. The disciples hear, Peter and John, they hear and they immediately run to see. They, it's early on Sunday morning. They don't, they don't eat breakfast. They don't have any excuses. They don't say, hey, hey, let me go and like water my donkey real quick, you know, or, or feed the chickens. For, no, they hear that the tomb is empty and they immediately start running too. And in this day, here's what you got to understand. In this culture, it was shameful for men to run, to run anywhere. Now that's a culture I can get with, right? I understand that. Man, it, it's, it's shameful for men to run in this day. It was humiliating for them. And so it says the other disciple, most scholars believe that's, that's John. He's referring to himself. The other disciple outruns Peter and he reaches the tomb first. <laughs> I love this. They hear the tomb is empty and they're racing. I'm gonna get you. No, I'm gonna beat you. No, I'm gonna beat you. Like they're, they're racing to the tomb. And it says that the other disciple, John, he reaches there first. Then Peter arrives and Peter immediately goes in. The other disciple kind of gets there and he's looking in and I can just imagine maybe he's catching his breath. He's like me. <sighs> he's waiting. I'll go in in a second. Hey, Peter, what's up? Peter goes straight in. And then John goes and the other disciple goes in after him. And it says this, when they saw the empty tomb, they believed, they believed, they ran, they saw the empty tomb and they believed. Why all the running? What? What are they believing and, and why are they believing? And then I say, again, I say it again, why all the running, right? Why all the running? Well, here's what I wanna to talk to you about today. Running on empty, running on empty. Now, the disciples are running and believing on empty, but it's not running on empty like out of gas or like out of energy. My wife, Darby, when she started driving for years after that, she ran out of gas all the time. In fact, she did it so much that her dad started getting her gas cans for her birthday. He even got her a gas can like after we were married one time for her birthday because she ran out of gas all the time. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the kind of running on empty we're talking about. Maybe you grew up in a denomination when people got really excited, they'd take a lap around the worship center, right? That's not the kind of running we're talking about here. No, the, the tomb was empty. Everyone's running. Everyone's believing. And so here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Running on empty. What does that mean? What, is that, what does that look like? Well, number one, an empty tomb ignites running with belief. It ignites running with belief. And not only the empty tomb, but Acts chapter one says that Jesus spent 40 days, 40 days with his disciples, with his followers. He spent 40 days with them, appearing to them and eating with them. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he would quote this Christian creed that dates back to within a few years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That the, the church was quoting this as a creed just within a few years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And Paul writes that creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look with me, starting in verse 
3. Paul says, I passed on to you, he's writing to the church at Corinth, what was most important and what has also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, that's Friday, just as the scripture said he would, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, that's Sunday. Just as the scripture said, so Paul once again is saying, listen, the, the scriptures, the, the Old Testament, the, the, the prophets specifically have told us this was what was going to happen. The Messiah would die and he would rise again. He was seen, Paul said, he was seen by Peter. We just read about that in John 20. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time most of whom, Paul says, are still alive right now and they could contradict this if they wanted to. But Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, though some have died. Then, watch this, he was seen by James, that's the brother of Jesus, and later by all of the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul said, I, I, I wasn't deserving to see Jesus risen from the grave. He was a persecutor of the church, but Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul said, as, as well. So, so Jesus appears, there's not just an empty tomb, he makes appearances to his disciples, to 500 people at one time, to James, his brother. You know the gospels say that James and the rest of Jesus' brothers, because Jesus had other brothers and family members, that, 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 that they believed that Jesus was going out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. The, the gospels actually record that Jesus' family thought he was nuts. And you would too, if your brother told you he was the son of God, right? I mean, if your brother came to you and said, hey, I'm the son of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, the father and I are one. You'd be like, bro, buddy, you, you're high or you, you've lost your mind, right? I, I mean, you're, 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 not. you're not, you're either lying or you're a lunatic, you're, you're, you're crazy. That's what Jesus's family thought about Jesus saying because Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. Jesus claimed to be God over and over and over again. And so his family thought they were, thought he was losing his mind. James thought he was losing his mind, but, but James sees Jesus risen from the grave and he believes. And when James writes his letter that's in the New Testament, James says this, James, a servant of my Lord, Jesus Christ. That's his brother. What would it take for you to say that about your brother? that you're a servant of your Lord and Savior, and it's your brother, it would probably take him coming back from the dead. And that's exactly what happened with James. James is the brother of Jesus. He sees Jesus risen from the grave and, and he can't deny it. Jesus is who he says he is. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. And so he was persecuting Christians and, and he was giving approval to their, to their martyrdom. And Jesus appears to Paul and Paul's life is completely changed. Thomas, one of the disciples, he, he wouldn't believe what he was told. But then Jesus appeared to him and, and Thomas touched his hands and where, where the nails went in and he touched his side where, where the spear went in and Thomas believed. John wrote in 1 John, we're telling you, we're talking to you. This is what John said. We're talking to you about what we saw with our own eyes and what we touched with our own hands. They were claiming to be eye 
witnesses to a resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave. We're not here today. We're not talking about these things because our parents told us, because it's what we learned in Sunday school, because someone else, no, no. We are here today because people I witnessed Jesus risen from the grave. Well, some of Jesus's enemies in that day and even skeptics to this day, they, they, they don't know what to do with this. And so they've come up with all these alternate theories about what happened and how to explain away the empty tomb because everyone knew the tomb was empty. And so they would say things like, well, they're hallucinating. They, yeah, they, they saw something, but they were hallucinating. Well, here's the problem with that theory. 500 people can't hallucinate the exact same thing at the exact same time. That is impossible. It wasn't a hallucination. They saw, John said, we saw with our eyes, we touched with our hands. Jesus has risen from the grave. And so watch this. You can believe today without seeing by faith but not just by blind faith. No, you can believe without seeing because the apostles believed after seeing with their eyes and and touching with their hands. They believed after seeing and touching an empty tomb ignites running with belief. Secondly, an empty tomb ignites running with passion. Running with passion. This, This empty tomb doesn't result in apathy or religious routine or business as usual. No, the the empty tomb ignites running with passion. Nobody's walking here. Nobody's even power walking. You ever seen that? Sorry if some of you guys are power walkers. It's the weirdest thing in the world to watch. I love that new Chris Paul State Farm commercial where he's power walking. It's just, it's just goofy, right? right? No one's walking here. No one's power walking. They are running with passion. Running communicates passion. It communicates effort. It communicates excitement. A dead man came back to life. It's why Peter and John said to the religious authorities of their day who told them, hey, quit talking about Jesus. They, they beat him. They whipped him. And they said, quit talking about Jesus. And Peter and John said this, we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. We we can't help but talk about what we we, we saw him with our eyes. We we touched him with our hands. And so we, we can't help but talk about what we've seen and what we've heard. There was excitement. There was passion there. We can't help it. This is the new covenant. This is what God promised in the Old Testament about a new covenant that would come where he would place his spirit inside of us and he would take out our heart of stone that's resistant to God and rebellious against God. He would take out our heart of stone and in the new covenant, he would place his spirit inside of us and his spirit would move us from the inside out to follow Jesus and worship Jesus and serve Jesus and talk about Jesus. Paul would write in Romans 7, so we don't serve God in the old way of the written code. No, we serve God in the new way of the spirit living inside of us, pumping inside of us, giving us a passion for serving Jesus and following Jesus and worshiping Jesus and talking about Jesus. This is the new covenant where God places his spirit inside of you. And like Peter and John said, we can't help 
but talk about what we've seen and what we've heard. An empty tomb ignites running with passion. Third, an empty tomb ignites running with commitment. Running with commitment. You know, one of the ways you know someone really believes something is that they're willing to suffer and even die for it. Most people, if they don't really believe something, they will deny it to save their life. They'll deny it just to not suffer any inconvenience or discomforts. But they'll definitely deny it in order to save their lives if they don't really believe what they're saying. Well, after the crucifixion, the disciples are transformed from cowardly men who ran and hid when Jesus was arrested to bold men willing to endure persecution, even martyrdom. And you're like, hey, uh, Pastor Clayton, like, that, that's great. That's what the Bible says. But, but there's not really any other sources outside the Bible that really confirm the accounts in the Gospels. That's wrong. There are many sources actually outside the Bible that say exactly this, that the disciples believe they saw Jesus risen from the grave and they were willing to die for what they saw and for what they touched with their hands. Watch this. Here's the first one. Here's one, at least. Here's the Clement, the Bishop of Rome in the first century. He wrote this because of envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars have been persecuted. He's talking about the disciples here. They've been persecuted and contended unto death. They were killed for their faith in the resurrection. Peter, who because of unrighteous envy of him, endured not one or two, but many afflictions. And having borne witness, went to the due glorious place. He was killed, in other words. He was martyred for his faith that Jesus rose from the grave. Next, this is Origen. It was a Christian theologian in the second century. Jesus, who has both once risen himself and led his disciples to believe in his resurrection, so thoroughly persuaded them of its truth that they show to all men by their sufferings how they are able to laugh at the troubles of life, their persecutions, beholding the life eternal and the resurrection clearly demonstrated to them both in word and deed. And now here is an atheistic New Testament scholar. Watch what he had to say. It may be taken as historically certain. Did you hear what he said? You know, you know, sometimes you might hear from some people, oh, Jesus didn't really exist. He never really died. No, no, no. Serious scholars understand that Jesus really existed and that he really died on the cross. And every serious scholar knows that the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the grave and were willing to die for it. He said this, it's historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death and was Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, this man doesn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave, but here's what he is saying. It is a historical fact. It is uncontroversial that the disciples believed they saw Jesus risen from the dead and they were so convinced that Jesus had risen from the grave that they were willing to die as martyrs for that Truth, followers of other religions have willingly suffered and died for their beliefs, but this doesn't mean that their beliefs are true. The difference between the apostles and those who die for their beliefs today are that most martyrs die for what they believe to be true, but most martyrs aren't in a position to know if it was really true. They're believing something someone else told them. However, the apostles died for something they knew 
to be either true or false. They were saying we, we were eyewitnesses, which means this, they were actually in the position to know if what they were saying was true or false. If they didn't see it, if they didn't touch him, then they died for what they knew to be a lie. And you just aren't going to have a lot of people step up to the plate and die for something they know to be a lie. It's why we say this all the time. Liars make bad martyrs. Liars make bad martyrs. The apostles said they were eyewitnesses. They were in the position to know if what they were saying was true or false. No one dies for something they know to be a lie. Some of Jesus' enemies and skeptics throughout history have said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Maybe they call it swoon. Maybe he swooned. He didn't really die. And so they laid him in the tomb and he wasn't really dead. He, he kind of got up and somehow after being beaten and tortured within an inch of his life, somehow he rolled away a stone that, that even one strong, healthy man couldn't roll away on his own. And, and somehow he made it to his disciples and convinced them bloody, bruised, and mangled within death's doorstep, right? Somehow convinced them that he really died and he came back to life. Listen, a, a bloody, bruised, broken, and nearly dead Jesus isn't going to convince anyone that he rose from the grave. It wouldn't have convinced them. It wouldn't have convinced James, his brother. It surely wouldn't have convinced Paul. They just would have said, hey, you, you didn't really die. Skeptics and enemies of Jesus throughout history have said, well, well, maybe he didn't, maybe he really did die, but maybe the disciples stole the body. They stole the body. And, and, and <laughs> I mean, come on. Can you imagine the disciples like standing around plotting this? Hey guys, listen, we're gonna tell the whole world that Jesus rose from the grave. We're gonna steal his body and then we'll tell everybody that he rose from the grave. And can you imagine one of the other disciples being like, and then what's gonna happen? And Peter being like, then we're all gonna get brutally murdered. It's gonna be awesome. I mean, can't you just see, like, at least one of the disciples, if not most of them, would be like, um, <laughs> so then what's in it for us again? And Peter being like, nothing, we get brutally murdered. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that the disciples would have stood around plotting this. Hey, we'll steal the body and then we'll tell everybody he rose from the grave. Every apostle but John died as a martyr in horrific ways. Some were crucified. One was crucified upside down on a cross. One was filleted alive with knives like a fish. Thomas, after seeing the hands of Jesus and putting his hand on the side, Thomas, tradition says, went to India where he was speared for preaching the gospel. These guys died in horrific, painful ways. Jesus not really dying or them stealing the body wasn't going to convince them to, to die. It wasn't going to convince James, the brother of Jesus. It wouldn't have convinced Paul, no, an empty tomb ignites running with 
commitments. And then finally, an empty tomb ignites running with purpose. Running with purpose. The disciples, Mary, they're running because something happened. Something happened that that changes everything. Something happened that, that means Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. That, that means if, if Jesus is risen from the grave, then, then that means Jesus was right. He's, he's the way to the Father. If Jesus is risen from the grave, then, then Jesus wasn't crazy. He wasn't lying. We, we saw him. We saw the Father. Jesus was God taking on flesh. Colossians 1 says he was the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. Jesus, we say often at our church, was God in a bod. And if Jesus is risen from the grave, that means that everything that Jesus said is true. It means he's, he's God. And so Paul wrote in Colossians chapter one, that, that, that means that we were made by Jesus and for Jesus. You were made by Jesus and you were made for Jesus. That means that you exist for a relationship with Jesus. Like that's your purpose in this life. Jesus actually said life is about getting to know uh, you, God, and your son whom you've sent. That's what life is all about. It's about knowing Jesus. And so Paul says in Acts 20, my life is worth nothing to me except finishing the task assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. When Jesus rose from the grave and showed himself to Paul, Jesus gave him a task like he gave to his other disciples. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And Paul said this in in Acts chapter 20, my life's worth nothing except finishing the task assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. We have an assignment to tell the world, to be his witnesses, just like his apostles, to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The Greek word for martis means to be a public witness in spite of the cost. A public witness in spite of the cost. You see, because the tomb is empty, Jesus is Lord. And our purpose is now to know Jesus and to make him known. That's our purpose in this life, to know Jesus and make him known. An empty tomb ignites running with purpose. The Jewish authorities, the Romans from the very beginning were making up stories to try to disprove the resurrection, to try to explain away the empty tomb. It's happened throughout history. They've said things like the disciples stole the body, that the, they were hallucinating, that Jesus didn't really die. Again, none of those options explain away the historical facts that the tomb was empty, that the apostles, James the brother of Jesus, Paul the persecutor, Thomas the doubter, and many others saw Jesus and were willing to die for their eyewitness testimony. There is no other explanation other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And some are like, man, no, that's just, that's just legend. It's just legend that developed over time. Well, you know, that's been proven to be false by serious scholars. In fact, it's been proven to be impossible, actually, that this was legend that just developed over 
time. The, the news of the resurrection and the belief in Jesus as God arose virtually instantaneously in the middle of the first century. Legend has been proven by scholars to take two full generations to develop. And yet instantaneously in the middle of the first century, we have sources inside the Bible and both outside the Bible that say the church believed that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and that he was God and they believed that to be true and they were telling other people about it in the middle of the first century. By 300 AD, Christians already make up 51% of the population in the Roman Empire. When it cost you your life in violent ways, when, when, when the church had no power, no wealth, no influence, how is this possible unless the resurrection of Jesus actually happened and following Jesus is actually worth it? even if it costs you your life. This was the darkest, most violent and sexually perverse culture ever. It was overthrown by quiet submission to Christ and to your neighbor. And so Rome in the first century began to say things like, these people, these Christians are turning the world upside down. They're, they're turning the world Upside down, no matter how much we burn them at the stake or feed them to the lions, they are turning the world upside down. Because the tomb was empty, because Jesus was alive, the church was running on empty. And they were changing the world. So here's my challenge for you today. It's this, it's run on empty, run on empty empty. The tomb is empty. He isn't there. He has risen. And so watch this. You can run on empty without seeing because the apostles ran on empty after seeing. We saw with our eyes, we touched with our hands. And so you can run to Jesus and you can run for Jesus because the tomb is empty, but, but not only that, you can run to Jesus and run for Jesus because, watch this, Jesus ran for you. Like he ran for you first. We've been studying the, the gospel of Luke, as many of you know, and weeks ago we covered Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. And I bet most of us are at least somewhat aware of the story of the prodigal son, the, the, the son who demands his inheritance from his father. He thinks, I've got to get out from underneath my, my, my father. If I can leave my father and get from out from underneath him and maybe his rules and his house, if I can just get away from my father, then I'll be free, then I'll be happy, then I can be really true to myself and, and, and be myself if I can just get away from my father. And so he demands his inheritance and he goes away and he squanders it and he ends up eating out of a pig trough. And Jesus says this son comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. And he says, I need to go back home. I need to go back home to my father. So he starts out He's going back home to his father and he's thinking, maybe I can just be a slave in my father's house. I'm not worthy to be a child. So he starts walking back home and Jesus 
says that the father is watching for him. The, the, the father in the story is watching for his son. As parents, maybe we can understand that, we can get that. The dad is waiting and watching the road to see each day if his son is gonna come back home. You see, even though the, the son had left the father's heart, the, the father's house, he had not left his father's heart. So the father's watching and he's waiting for his son to come back home. The son starts coming down the path and the dad sees the son and he starts running to his son. He runs to his son. He throws his arms around him. He he gives him a kiss. He, He doesn't stand here with arms crossed. No, he has arms wide open to embrace his son and to welcome his son home. He ran out to see his son. And remember in this day, remember that in the ancient world, a man of his social status would wear great robes and be careful to follow all the customs and the protocol of the time. And so to see a man running down this dusty road with his robes tucked up underneath his belt so that he could run, exposing his legs was shameful. But the the father doesn't care about shaming himself. His son is coming home. And so the father runs out to meet him. Why? Is he excited his son's coming home? Sure. Has he been waiting every day for his son to come? Yes, but there's so much more happening here in the story of the prodigal son. You see, Dr. Kenneth Bailey in his book called The Cross and the Prodigal notes that the Talmud, which is a book of Jewish teachings and writings, reveals that something else is at play here in the story of the prodigal son as to why the father is running. You see, if a Jewish son lost his inheritance among the Gentiles and then he tried to return home, the community would perform a ceremony called Keza. It was led by the elders of the community. Keza meant to be cut off from your people as a judgment for your sin and shame. And in this ceremony, they would throw a clay pot down in front of you and the clay pot would shatter and it would symbolize that you are cut off from your community forever. And so the father knows that his son is coming down this path to Keza. And so the father starts running. You see, the the, the father wasn't allowed to attend the Keza ceremony because the father's blessing always trumped Keza. It always trumped the decision to cut the child off from the community. And so if, if the father could make it to the son before the son made it to Keza, then the father could save the son from being cut off and punished. And so the father sees his son coming down that path and he starts running. The dad shames himself so that his son won't be shamed and cut off from his community forever. The dad had to get to his boy before his boy got to Keza. Because the father's blessing trumps Keza. And Jesus tells the story to reveal that this is the heart of God to get to you before you get to Keza and you're cut off forever. You know, the Bible says it's appointed unto a man once to die and then to face judgment. 
that every single one of us, 10 out of 10 people in this room, we will die and then you will face judgment. You will stand before God and give an account of your life. You think you're just gonna stroll up to the pearly gates and that God's gonna let you into his heaven? Listen, the sun burns your eyes from 92 million miles away. You think you're just gonna stroll up to its creator and demand to be let into his heaven? You think you're just gonna casually walk into the presence of God? You have sinned against an infinitely holy and righteous God. And the Bible says there's a fine to be paid for breaking God's law. It's eternity separated from him in hell. You break man's law, you pay man's fine. You break God's law, you pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity in hell. So here's what God did because of his great love for you. Here's what your father, God did for you because of his great love for you. He sent Jesus to run ahead of you. He sent Jesus to get to you before you get to Keza. And on that cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the, the Keza, the, the cutting off, the, the shame of your sin on the cross. He, he took that on himself for you. Isaiah 53 says he was crushed, prophesied that the Messiah would be crushed for our sin, for your sin. Jesus was crushed on that cross as he took on the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Jesus took the shame of Keza for you when he died on that cross, paying your fine for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering your sin, conquering death. And the scripture says, if you give your life to Jesus, then you get the Father's blessing. And the Father's blessing trumps Keza. You get the Father's blessing that says, no, you are a child of God. You're a child of God. The Father's blessing trumps Keza. And so maybe, maybe you've been away from the Father. Maybe, maybe you left home. Can I challenge you? Come, come back home today. Maybe you've turned away from Christ. Maybe you've been hurt by other Christians or, or, or by the church. Maybe you've made some poor choices. Maybe you left your father, but, but listen, you haven't left your father's heart and he's calling you home today. So, so regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, you can run home to Jesus today because Jesus ran for you. And because Jesus ran for you, because he rose from the grave, Paul wrote this, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For the sin is the sting that leads and results in death. But thank God, he gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why everybody was running because they had victory over their sin. They had victory over their death in Jesus' name. So forget this lifeless, dead, apathetic, comfortable American Christianity. Stop running after and running for other things that will never satisfy you. Run for what matters in light of eternity. Run to Jesus. Run for Jesus. Run on empty. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and for how you draw us to yourself through 
your word. And we thank you for an empty tomb that ignites running with belief and and passion and commitment and purpose. And God, I pray that your spirit would stir those things up in your kids this morning. And then we would run with passion. So God, ignite that that flame in some of us all over again this morning, that we might come home, that we might run home to Jesus because he ran for us. And God, I know there's some here today and they've never given their lives to Jesus. Maybe they've been rejecting that Jesus Christ rose from the grave as legend or maybe just thinking the bottle, the, the, the disciples stole the body, what, what, whatever, it, whatever it's been. And, and maybe there's some here today, they've just been thinking if they can do better and try harder and if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, that maybe somehow you'll, you'll let them into heaven. God, I pray that today you would convince by your spirit, you convince those who've never given their life to Jesus that Jesus rose from the grave. Maybe through some of the evidence that we've talked about this morning. And God, I pray if there's people here today thinking that they can do better and try harder their way into the kingdom of God, you would convince them that they will never be able to do better and try harder enough to be right with you. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. The Bible says in Ephesians that salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. Romans 10, 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, you, you give your life to Jesus and believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, then you will be saved. And so this morning I'm I'm pleading with you to give your life to Jesus, to confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And the Bible says when you make that decision to give your life to Jesus, to quit trying to do better and try harder, but give your life to Jesus and believe that Jesus died on that cross for you, paying your fine for sin, rose again three days later, giving you victory over sin and death. If that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus for the very first time, jump on our app. Fill out our connect form. Let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus. Talk with one of our people at our welcome center in our lobby. But but today is the day, I believe it, for many of you to quit doing better and trying harder your way into the kingdom of God and recognize that Jesus ran for you. He died on that cross for you and he rose again so that you and I can have victory over sin and death. Give your life to Jesus today. God, we thank you for your great love for us that while we were yet sinners, you you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to to run ahead of us, to to, to beat us to Keza. And so God, we thank you for your great love for us. Draw us to yourself this morning and set our hearts on fire for an empty tomb and for a risen Jesus, that it would be true of us like it was of the disciples, like it was of Mary, like it was of the early church, that we run with belief and passion and commitment and purpose, that we run on empty. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as our team leads us in worship?